Welcome to the Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the American... <laughs> yep. Robert. Try that again. <laughs> I'm the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. Well, this is the Blurred Lines edition of the Winnow, since we're talking about boundaries uh, and, and fuzzy geographical boundaries in particular. Now, I sort of start off the show by saying this is a podcast about dining in the South and beyond, but where is the South and where is beyond? Uh, you know, and oftentimes on, on this podcast, at least, when we talk about beyond, we're, we're talking about New York City because so much happens up there from a food scene, and I don't think anybody would consider... New York City to be part of the South. Uh, I've never heard anybody make, um, anyone make that claim. But what about places like Baltimore, Maryland, or, or Louisville, Kentucky? Uh, you know, are, are those Southern cities? Are they Northern cities, Midwest border cities? You know, that, that's a some interesting question. It, it sort of came up for me this week. I was finishing up a, a Southern Living piece on Kansas City barbecue, and uh, you know, this is Southern Living, and yet Kansas City fits into their definition <laughs> of the South, which includes Missouri, and Kansas City really straddles. Missouri and Kansas, because half the barbecue places I went to were in Kansas, so I was actually covering Kansas uh, barbecue for, for Southern Living. But that does raise the question, you know, how should we define the South geographically, especially when it comes to Southern food and, and what, is, what is Southern food? And uh, people always, we, you know, when they see me writing about, you know, Baltimore, either for Garden and Gun, which I used to offer Southern Living, they say, well, that's not Southern, but I don't know. What, do you have a take on that? I do. I do. In fact, I have the answer. So oh, I don't think we need to talk answer. about this very long. <laughs> um, you know you're in the South and when you ask for tea, it comes iced. That's it. If, if you ask for tea and they bring you a bunch of Lipton tea bags and a hot water— you're no so, longer so you're now set. doing the the tea. Well, see, this is a little different wrinkle because for a long time there was the sweet tea. Sweet tea, line, uh, no, yeah, the, which, the, yeah. which uh, some guy it, uh, drew and went somewhere in the middle of Virginia somewhere, right. and so he was saying. The parts up, you know, north, northern Virginia, up near DC, were not southern. But you're saying no, Baltimore, obviously north of DC. I will say I used to subscribe to the sweet tea theory, but then McDonald's started selling sweet tea, and sweet yes. tea is no longer a regional uh, definer. Well, uh, the funny thing about that sweet tea line theory mm-hmm. is that it was, a it was based on McDonald's. Mm-hmm. So the guy who did it, uh, and I can't remember if he's a graduate student or somebody, he he was sort of plotted out like all the you know the, the idea was he plotted out going to all these McDonald's as he was driving around Virginia who That's had great sweet grad tea school thesis. and who didn't. <laughs> Turns out he didn't really. He, he just sort of made it up. Uh, oh. It's sort of based upon sort of oh. experiential. Well, wait, wait, wait. That's yeah. how you know you're in the South if yeah. people are telling tall tales. It's a tall, tall tale. <laughs> he, he like went to four McDonald's. One was near D.C. Or Southerner. Like. And he admitted through. at some point. He maybe went to more than that. But he admitted that he did not actually survey all the McDonald's in Virginia and, and draw the line. It was based mm-hmm. more upon just the tummy feel and then filling in, in the gaps. So even that is 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 sort of foolish. Is, uh, is unsweetened iced tea, is that a thing? Or is, or is that... Um, well, it's a vehicle, a vehicle, a vehicle is, for artificial sweeteners. This is fascinating that you should ask that because just this summer I had the chance to go to the Celestial Seasonings Factory in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it was my first trip to Boulder, and that's where they and, make— And you went to the Celestial Seasonings? Celestial Seasonings, which invented the concept of herbal tea. Yeah, because I know, of I know course, them before some, all those crazy flavors, sleepy time tea is something that yes, my wife so, always has on the shelf because she loves it, herbal tea. And, I got to see the sewing machine where they sewed the first bags of sleepy time, <laughs> which was pretty cool. So as you might imagine— Boulder in the late 60s, early 1970s, when these guys were like, hey, we're going to sell some herbs, man. Um, they had to put like a nicer name on it. And so they invented the concept of herbal 
herbal tea. Again, when you just put herbs in hot water, that is not tea. Tea is a plant. Yes. You know, it's something entirely different. But they invented this idea, and it's exact- really there was no herbal tea before then. Nope, I had, I had no idea. Yep, I'm- nope. They invented herbal tea, and they've made a you know an empire out of it. Mm-hmm. They it was really fascinating. I mean, I will never turn down a factory tour. <laughs> Food factory tours are fantastic. I love them. Yeah, they are. Uh, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and so they tell you about you know how they package and sell in every country in the world. So everyone now is converted to herbal tea, but there are different flavors that are preferred in different places. So um, here's what I'm getting at. Um, now they have. The gamut of flavors. And they can't get anyone to buy tea in the summertime because when they think about iced tea, people still only think of black tea. And so now the tour guides are – they are charged with at the end of each tour saying, (laughs) have you ever tried any of these teas in your iced tea? Because their sales drop off so precipitously, according to my tour guide – that they don't – so the, the factory wasn't running that day. They only run on demand. Oh, wow. They don't have enough orders coming in from grocery stores and things. So they're going to try to make herbal iced tea a thing. Correct. So you should be thinking about, you know, your Christmas spices and your pumpkin mm-hmm. spice and all that. Think about having it cold. So I, I, back to your question. So her, <laughs> so herbal iced tea is yep. is not yet a thing, but if if uh, celestial seasoning has anything to do with it, it soon will be. Exactly, it's not yet a popular thing. Obviously, if you go to any you know like high end vegetable restaurant, yep. of course they want to <laughs> offer you like the you know whatever kind of tea it is. You know with all the botanicals that yeah. You know. um, so you could get like a eucalyptus iced tea or such a thing. Um, but when shoppers go to the grocery store, and of course this is the bulk of yep. celestial seasonings market. Um, they don't look at all those pretty colors and flavors and think, I should cool that off. Yeah. They're going down to the bottom shelf, the big old yep. Lipton or Tetley right, or right, the right. store Luzanne brand, family-sized yeah. tea mm-hmm. bags because they're going to make iced tea out of it. Yep. So you're asking, is unsweet tea a thing? Well, it's definitely, definitely a thing. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> what, I guess what I'm asking is my, my very naive opinion is that when you walk up to the counter and you choose between yes. sweet and unsweet, the reason you're choosing unsweet is because you're going to put an artificial sweetener Not in true. it. Not true. Oh, no. no. I actually uh, I had a glass of unsweet iced tea this morning. Okay. Right. Um, and over time, now I love sweet tea, but you know, growing up in the South, we, my mom usually made, made it sweet. But at some point, when my family was trying to, probably my father was trying to lose weight, she started cutting back on the sugar. At some point, we started just drinking unsweet, and I guess I got used to it. And it still has a great tea flavor. It's very refreshing. The problem with, uh, for me, with super sweet tea is you can only drink so much of it. One glass of it is fine, but that's all you want. But like unsweet tea, you can guzzle that down. It's somehow more satisfying than water. It has a little little caffeine in it, nothing like coffee. So, Robert, how early in the day did you have your iced tea today? Oh, it was probably 9 o'clock this morning, but that's fairly late in the day for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I had had coffee Mm -hmm. right out. I never, it's one of those things. I don't think of uh, iced tea as a morning drink. I I usually don't. Sometimes (laughs) in the morning, and actually, I'd I'd gone and exercised. So, I'd already had the whole whole day behind me. So, it was very very refreshing. (laughs) I didn't want a cup cup of hot coffee at that Mm -hmm, point. So, mm -hmm. I I mean, I have to guess a lot of people take their tea unsweetened just because restaurants sometimes don't know what to do with the sweetener thing, especially, the, I mean, fancy restaurants, you know, they bring the simple syrup, yeah. they bring a, you know, I mean, it's true. A lot of people do cubes. put artificial sweetener in it. And, and there's actually a lot of assumption when I, because I would unsweet tea at restaurants all the time. Um, and they'll say, you know, do you want sweet and low or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's why I ask, because that's yeah. always been my experience. If you order, then the n- next question is going to be, well, do you want the little boat yeah. of... And that mm-hmm. actually works, you know, because the artificial sweetener, unlike real sugar, will dissolve just fine right. and you can get 
sweetener. I just don't like that. There's always an off note to an artificial sweetener that just isn't pleasing to me. So I've over time just got to, to enjoy it. And actually, if you make it with better teas, like a, a really good um, like celestial season, <laughs> well, you can get a lot of green no, iced tea. Really, now absolutely, and green tea iced, and it it's, it has great flavor to it. So. No, it's it's actually true. I mean, even though we can talk about celestial seasonings at the kind of you know mass market level, it's very true. There are a lot of teas that are that are terrific cold. It's funny. I wrote a, a, several times several pieces about the history of, of iced tea, and the whole sweet tea is a southern marker. Is, is a relatively recent thing. And, um, you know, and then it became, like in the 80s, this dividing line, the guy had the sweet tea line, and when everyone all of a sudden in the South was drinking a sweet, but now, of course, people all over the country, thanks to McDonald's and others and Snapple, mm-hmm. now have uh, sweetened tea everywhere. So that's no longer a dividing line that we can use to tell. No, but North I still think the cold hot thing is... The cold hot <laughs> is pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. I and mean, do you have another food or drink that you think is could serve that well, function? Well, mine's less about a... a, a no, I don't think that I necessarily do because you start going through it, you know, barbecue, barbecue is everywhere. You know, I was in Kansas City for barbecue. Uh, you know, Baltimore does not have barbecue, It mm-hmm. really. It, it has some, but it's all Southern style. They do have pit beef, which people will argue left and right, whether, whether it's barbecue. I think it's a a variant of barbecue. But no, I don't know that there is a a, a food that I would, I would do. But I think it's more like, you know, would you, if you go to uh, Louisville, Kentucky, are you, is it Southern food? And certainly Baltimore is and Kentucky both are very famous for their fried chicken. Um, so those you know, sort of border states, if you will, uh, are, you know, that could be a marker. But, you know, of course, fried chicken fried is chicken? everywhere. And we've talked about yeah. the German style fried chicken. I'm going to, I'm going to, reject fried chicken as a marker. Well, people get really, though, people get really aggravated that sometimes, or, or agitated, I should say, mm-hmm. about whether, you know, what is and is not the South. Like, is Texas the South? Right. Well, and, and that's an interesting, and that one's interesting, because I don't know that Texas wants to be in the South. I mean, they're yeah. their own thing. That, 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 <laughs> so I think that's, it's considered that way both in and out. It, it, well, it is and it isn't, because, like, <laughs> um, it, there's so much about Texas that is the South. It was settled by Southerners. It was a slave-holding state. Exactly. It was part of the Confederacy. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson uh, actually cultivated this image during the, the Civil Rights era of being a Westerner, mm-hmm. even though he was, you know, and, and he, he, barbecue comes in, in into play there as well, which is the barbecue tradition, particularly in the eastern part of Texas, is very much a Southern tradition. It was brought there, used it by African-American cooks who, who brought barbecue with them. But when LBJ did barbecues at his ranch, he put the cowboy hats and the red checkered tablecloth and the wagon wheels, and he sort of blew it out as this sort of cowboy thing because he was specifically positioning himself as not being a Southerner. He was, he was a Texan, a Westerner, mm-hmm. you know, some, tying more into the cowboy image at the time where you know the Southerners, for, for good reason, were, didn't have such a great uh, – at least white Southerners didn't have such a great, great image on the national stage. I wonder if it's something to do with the demographic makeup of a state or a community at a particular time. And I don't just mean the Civil War. I think, you know, there's always understanding that the South, it, what constitutes the South yep. is the former Confederacy. But beyond that, because— But that doesn't necessarily work because K- I, Kentucky trying, and Maryland were not part of the Confederacy. Neither seceded. Exactly. So let's Both were slaveholding states, but that, neither succeeded. Where I'm going instead is I wonder if it has to do with something with the demographic makeup, whether it's in terms of socioeconomic class or race, when— food got really industrial and maybe mm-hmm. what persisted beyond that. I'm trying to figure out how I can tell you that Miami's not in the South because oh, we all know that was, to be true. That's what I was that's getting where I'm to. Going. That's, that's where I'm get going. To, that's when we get to Florida. So, I was holding that one in, the, in, in reserve. Yeah, we'll, we'll get so, to that in a moment. But Baltimore in particular was was viewed as a Southern state 
in the late 19th century. It's all up to H.L. Mencken, yeah. I think. Um, but by people in, in New York and elsewhere, they would they would talk about the good old Southern cooking and, and Maryland, both Maryland fried chicken, but also uh, Maryland terrapin soup. Well, remember, too, uh, this was before the southern, age of jet travel. So yes. you were going pretty far you south from New York. All right. I, mean, it's, 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 you I know. think people felt there was more commonality between Maryland and D.C. and Richmond and Charleston than there was between, say— Baltimore and New York and, uh, no, I and, think that's and right. Boston at the time. Now, yeah. I think that definitely has changed. Baltimore See, doesn't I, feel like a southern city to me when I'm there now. It no. it feels like its own city. It's mm-hmm. its own thing, but it, it doesn't feel very southern. Right. And the food doesn't mm-hmm. strike me as, as particularly southern, maybe because everything there is so focused on blue crab these days. Mm-hmm. But there, there's a long, long history there that, uh, that goes beyond blue crab. Okay, so let's talk about Florida. This is a, always an interesting one where, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a funny little barbecue video uh, that has been on YouTube forever where these guys sing a little song about the United States of barbecue, and they're singing about all the different regional styles, and they get to Florida, and they sort of stop and, and say, is Florida part of the South? And they say, no, it's not. And so very adamant about that. Um, so you were going to Miami. So is Miami Southern or, or no, not? No, I mean, that's what they like to say. You go north in Florida to go south, right? Yeah. So, yeah, no. So it's not, and that's why I'm advancing this theory about demographics. I think it has to do with, like, you know, in 1950-whatever, and it was all Jews and Cubans. Uh, it's it's not a southern city. It comes from a different a different heritage. Well, I don't – yeah, it's – now, definitely, if you've ever been to Tallahassee, and I've spent many years there. I actually have family uh, down, down Tallahassee. It is it is as southern as, as it comes. You know, that is a very southern oh. city, and it, it's part of South Georgia yes. cu- culturally. And then as you go down – you know, as you get down around Orlando – there's still a lot of, of the South there, but all the new stuff that's got layered on with Disney and, right. and just the explosion of Orlando and in Tampa. And, and now immigration has just, you know, really transformed those cities. So yep. they're, they're becoming their own thing in Central Florida. Mm-hmm. Miami is an interesting case. There's uh, It used to be Southern in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but there's you know such an influx of people. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Northerners. So obviously a lot of uh, Jewish folks out north, but just just Northerners in general retiring there. Big influx of, of Cuban immigrants, obviously after after Castro, even more and more. So it makes it feel like such a, a Caribbean city in a, in a lot of ways. And of course, it has the palm trees everywhere in the climate and, and all that. But to some extent, so does Charleston. Uh, we've we've got that that aspect. I, I have this long running sort of theory that I wish I could make the case for. I never quite did. But um, when I was doing my book, Southern Spirits, I was going to, initially I had this idea that I was going to write about the American South and the Caribbean as one region. Because mm-hmm. certainly in the colonial era, the, the South Carolina, Charleston, it was oh. more connected to Barbados and more connected to the Caribbean than, than it was to, say, New York or Boston. Sure. And the culture was very similar. Um, another interesting thing I was reading uh, is it Spike Gerhe? I'm not sure how you say his name at uh, Woodbury Kitchen up in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, chef there, and he's like this super locavore, and he, he was trying to do all this stuff. He couldn't use citrus juice in his cocktails because there's no citrus in in, in, in Baltimore. But there is plenty of citrus in, uh, in in South Carolina. In fact, I have a lemon tree in front of my yard. Last 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 fall, I think I brought you guys mm-hmm. some lemons. Right. They're that. all they're just starting to turn yellow, and we're going to have another bumper crop of lemons again. So, you know, we can have fresh local citrus here. Right. Just like the Caribbean. Yeah. And I've got two orange trees in the backyard that have oranges this year. So Mm -hmm. we'll we'll see just a couple, but we'll see how they they, they come out. So I can make that case that there is some southernness to to Miami, but that's because some parts of the south are more like the Caribbean than they are like 
other parts of the U.S. Sure, but I, I don't think that you necessarily feel it when you're in Miami, and that's why no, I'm looking for some sort of marker. Like, <laughs> you know, I would say, like, if you've got, like, peppers and vinegar on the table, you're probably in the South. You know, I mean, I feel like there's something like that where it has to be that where there is a, you I, know, an I objective I do remember going, going back to iced tea, I do remember visiting Miami and going mm-hmm. into a barbecue restaurant there, and they brought a glass of iced tea, and it had a lime wedge in it rather than mm, lemon. Interesting. And it's actually delicious. And uh-huh. I, I often will put lime in, in iced tea now, but that was just like such a Miami kind of thing to do. Right. You know? And uh, I, I do think it was unsweet. I can't remember. So another another thing I, I, that just occurred to me that I'll throw out there to support your thesis here. Um, do you remember there was a very short-lived CBS um, legal drama, Reckless, that was supposed to take place here in Charleston. Here, yeah. yeah. It lasted a season. Um, of course, it was laid on thick with, like, every Southern yeah. trope you can imagine. Like, I, they go into a courtroom, and, and there's, like, the big old-timey <laughs> fans spinning in the corner. Like, no, we and have, we set, have, we have air conditioning. this is set in, in what uh, year? Is it modern times? Yes, okay. yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, I think that the main overarching arc had to do with, like, some drug ring in yeah. Mount Pleasant or something. I, anyway. Um, <laughs> but then compare that to CSI Miami, which is oh, yeah. very much not reliant on on Southern tropes at all. Right. I mean, I think a couple of characters have Southern accents, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy about those? I, I didn't see this particular one, but I love seeing things set in Charleston where people have this. Just the accents are just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they have accents you will never hear in uh, in South Carolina. And it's just so automatic in popular culture. I always felt I used to live in Mississippi, and I thought people would have a completely different view of Mississippi if every time we got on TV they didn't have what blues man. You know, it's like every. <laughs> time you hear you see Mississippi you hear the blues and you know I love the blues I'm not anti-blues but it does I mean it, it does you know it, it connote a very certain kind of well, place if, if you if, if you pay attention to like whenever there's like a national news story and they like have the the moment where they go down south there's got to be like banjo music <laughs> right, 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 like, right. Like, you got to do that well like, that's the white version the right black well, version well, yeah, is the yeah, yeah. yeah depending on where you are if you're out in the yeah. mississippi delta right. somewhere you stop at the shack there's going to be a blues band I playing still, no yeah. i or just over i still remember that episode of er where the doctor <laughs> anthony you know, went back home to mississippi and anyways um but speaking of, of er and going home to mississippi actually <laughs> the city that i always think of as southern and i remember John T. and I were in Florida. It was over 10 years ago. And this is back when Southern Foodways Alliance did field trips. And they're saying, where should we go next? What southern city should we explore? And I said, well, Chicago. Yeah. Chicago is the most southern of cities, which, which leads me back to my whole thesis about demographics. I, I really feel like— well, and that's to me why Kansas City sort of does fit into the South. Actually, mm-hmm. I think in the piece I wrote, that's where the Kansas, the Kansas and Missouri rivers meet, and it's where the Midwest meets the South, because there are aspects of that city that feel very Southern. There's aspects of the foodways that feel very Southern. Then there's also access aspects that are straight out of the Midwest, and you know the huge grain industries and the, and, the, and the livestock industries. But the barbecue there certainly was very influenced by the South. Henry Perry, who was the sort of grandfather of, of Kansas City barbecue, uh, was from Tennessee. And, and just, you know, as so many other African-Americans did in the early part of the 20th century, he moved north. Uh, he landed in Kansas City, as did a lot of other uh, African-Americans who brought the barbecue tradition. But you're right, lots and lots of, particularly after World War II, African-Americans in the South ended up in, in Chicago and brought with them their food cultures and their, and their food ways and other Southern migrant, not 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 just black, but but Southern migrants in general. So yeah, I would agree. There are so many elements to just Chicago's food scene that have Southern roots, but it doesn't feel Southern to me. There's there's a Chicago 
style and edge yeah, it's a it. very it's a distinct yeah. thing. It is a distinct thing. But if you were to classify it, to me, it just feels like it has more overlaps with a place like Birmingham than a place like Minneapolis. Honestly, that's a good. Interesting. There's such a there's such a other element though to Chicago of of immigrants from from Eastern Europe and everywhere else that sort of it's well this yes mixture. and no but it, well it is a mixture and it is the most segregated city oh, of any market yeah. right so yes so there there's is a southern na- uh, <laughs> nature yes, there right exactly <laughs> so I don't know I, I go back to if you look at the demographics in the mid 1950s <laughs> I'm telling you you look at the percentage of African Americans in the community you look at where they the city was you know socioeconomically and where it stood in terms of legislation like that segregation I think that's where you find yourself yep. I think so, and and from a food scene, of course, it's it's going to be hard to say because they merge and and uh, you know they merge together, but also re- there's such regional differences within the South. The South is is not a, a monolith, as we we're, we're fond of saying. One thing that always gets me is um, is whiskey, uh, and the the idea that Kentucky. Is is in oh, you bourbon? Mean you're saying Pennsylvania is not getting the credit yeah, it deserves. Well, well, they but they're Kentucky and bourbon are particularly this great southern southern spirit. These the thing everyone thinks of as, as as the South, but then Pennsylvania, which is the home, and Baltimore and Maryland, the home of rye whiskey. That rye whiskey isn't southern at all. It's usually not, and you don't think of Pennsylvania, but geographically, the reason that all these places produce whiskey is because they are very similar. From the grain grows well there, right. the temp, they're very similar temperature. They have limestone uh, rich waters that supposedly makes the best whiskey. And certainly, there's no historical reason bourbon was not really drunk in the eastern seaboard. It was drunk in the in more in the you know the Mississippi uh, Delta area because it, it was shipped there from Kentucky. But Pennsylvania and Maryland supplied all the whiskey to the to the East Coast. So there's nothing historical about that. But yet somehow we've got this wonderful image of Kentucky as the old, you know, the all this bourbon with people with so southern, southern draws and all the gentlemen in the white suits and all that. But Pennsylvania somehow is not <laughs> mm-hmm. escaped from that. But uh, I don't think whiskey isn't truly southern in that sense. That's really a whatever you want to call that middle region. Uh, it's not really the mid-Atlantic because Kentucky can't be called the mid-Atlantic. Right. But it's that band there that, that, that sort of cuts across the middle part of, of the country. Mm-hmm. So we'll never resolve it. Um, I do think that there are certainly strong Southern elements in Baltimore, in Missouri, uh, in Texas, especially in Texas. But, you know, it's sort of like the South <laughs> radiates outward at some point blends with the, the rest of the country. Well, next up, speak, and speaking of North and South, uh, just this summer it was announced that Food & Wine magazine was moving uh, from from its uh, digs in, in New York City to, all of all places, Birmingham, Alabama. Now, you just you, you mentioned this one to, to me recently. I think this was, it was a, month, a couple of months ago this was announced, yeah. but um, it, I don't, we just never got around to, to talking about it. But to me, I, I it's think a the really, transition is still Yeah, I, I think they announced yep. it. It hasn't really moved exactly. yet, but it, it's in process. But as soon as you brought it up, I was like, yeah, that is a really interesting move. And uh, what made you think of it uh, as we were prepping for today? Um, I was thinking of it because food and wine is in town. Ah. Our town. <laughs> they have not moved to Charleston. They no, People from food and wine. Correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it makes sense if you know about the industry and, and, and how all these magazines and titles and brands are tied together, but you may not really connect it because food and wine seems like such, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the, 
when I say the, the just pillars of food journalism, you know, very influential <laughs> and food journalism has long been headquartered in New York. New York City was where, where food journalism has been. Right. And now this, this sort of icon is moving south. Right. So. And it's always had a very strong restaurant identity, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a little different than something like a Cooking Light, which is already yeah. in Birmingham. Um, so, but it's, again, as you say, this does make sense in terms of it, 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 it's, I say it wrong. Is Time Life, right? Yeah. yeah. Time, actually, Time Inc. Time the, Inc. Thank the, you. I know the inter- this really interesting, I, I find it interesting that there is this behemoth called Time Warner, which right. is this conglomeration that bought everything. And they bought AOL at one point, which I was like, why is Time Warner buying AOL? And um, surprisingly, surprise, surprise, that didn't work out so great. And so starting around 2009, they started spinning everything back out. So they spun off AOL and they spun off Time Warner Cable. So they don't have a cable company. And then that... Um, you know, that they still, at that point, it was basically broadcasting. So like CNN, Turner Broadcasting, HBO, and then the Warner Brothers movie studios, and then the Time Life empire of magazines was all rolled together as Warner, as Warner Brothers. And in 2009, they the magazine business does not fit with the movie business. So they spun off Time Inc., which is essentially all the magazines that at the time, 2014, everybody was bleeding money and trying to figure out how to transition from the print economy to the digital economy. And so now you're left with timing. But that includes um, a lot of magazines already in uh, Birmingham, including Southern Living, Cooking Light, and Coastal Living. So it's basically Food & Wine now joining them down in, in Birmingham. Right. And they have made significant investments in their facility there. Yeah. And they've said that that was part of the reason is they have this really magnificent test kitchen in Birmingham. It's so- not just a test kitchen. It's really um, it's, it's really sort of almost a testament of where food journalism is going. It's a food studio. Is right. That what they call Sorry. It. Well, it, it, it is test kitchens. And, yeah. and testing recipes is a huge part of food journalism. Yep. They have something like 28 test kitchens. They basically took, if, if you've ever been to the Southern Living facility. It's now the timing facility. It's huge, wonderful, like just crazy, huge, sprawling building. It's up on in all these trees, up on a hillside outside, I guess, south of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, they had lots of space. So they basically took like one of the floors. It's like forty thousand square feet. So they have twenty eight test kitchens, thirteen fo- photo studios, uh, video studios. Um, so it's it's not just about testing food. It's about making food testing it, taking pictures of it, taking videos of it. Because nowadays with Facebook right. and everything else, uh, all the food stuff is multimedia. They have all these recipe videos and no one really knows how they're going to make money off of the stuff, but they're, they're, they're doing everything they can. Right. And so with Food & Wine, it was the digital group that was moved yep. first for exactly right. that reason. Yep. The yep. digital group moved. But now it's all editorial. I think advertising and marketing is staying up in New York, which is fine. That's where, mm-hmm. you know, ads, ad, ads, yeah, ads still sold. belong in New York. But all the uh, all the editorial folks are, are coming down, um, which will be an interesting shift because for a while there have people been sort of complaining that with the digital age, more and more food media was accumulating in New York. In New York. Yeah, yeah, right. We're sort of getting drawn there. Yep. And then there's a big cute, because well, now everything's just New York centric. You had all these people writing listicles off the internet, never going to Texas or never going to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, does this mean we're going to get a more of a Southern slant on food writing? I don't know. I don't know. And apparently this decision took some heat. Uh, there was a piece published, I believe, on Medium of someone saying that this is really a backward step for food and wine. Um, there's, you know, there's still some anti-Southern sentiment yep. up north. Um, and they felt like it, 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 this, the line stuck out to me. They're like, you know, how can you move this, you know, this great food title to a place that doesn't even have a Jewish deli? <laughs> and 
I mean, it's just so talking about sure, New York there's centric. A Jewish <laughs> yeah. There's got to be a Jewish deli in Birmingham. I'm just telling you what the person said. So, <laughs> but the idea that that's your, you know, that's your gauge of diversity yeah. is whether or not there's a Jewish deli. I think really speaks to why they have to get out of New York. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad about this. Um, I don't think this decision is perfect all around. Um, part of it is a shared editor arrangement. Mm-hmm. So Hunter Lewis is now will be editing both Food and Wine and Cooking Light. I mean, I, I don't know how you edit one of those magazines, yep. let alone two. And that's, I mean, Hunter's fantastic. But I'm just saying in terms of, you know, someone have being able to devote the, the, the time. It's certainly timing, uh, as with any large publishing group, uh, anybody publishing in print at least, they've had to go through a lot of changes. They're exactly. having to downsize. And They're listen, you know, I think staff. And, if yeah. you can save money by moving people yep. to Birmingham, which I suspect you can, and not having to, you know, duplicate facilities yep. and not pay New York rent, which is what we hear from every chef that's come to yes. Charleston, if you have any opportunity to spend that money on journalism, I am all, all for, for this. It. All and, for it. And I can see why, too. I mean, I did get to visit Savour's offices up in New York in Manhattan, mm-hmm. which is right in Midtown Manhattan. And yep. they're up, you know, some way up high in a, in a in a building, but their offices are tiny. They're crammed. There's books everywhere, everywhere, and they have like a one test kitchen, which is really nice. But then they sort of have a one window that looks back on the air, the little air shaft in the back, and they do all their photography there. There's this one window with a white window ledge, compared to forty thousand square feet of test kitchen and, and video. That would cost you a, a literal fortune to to right. to have that in Manhattan. So I, I can see I mean, it's, and it's it's nothing new to say so. But New York is such a bubble, and yes, yeah. you may have representatives of more communities and cultures there than anywhere else in the world, but they come together in a way that is unique for the world. And I just think it's important for in food journalism that we understand and live with our audience. And so the vast majority of Americans live more like Birminghamites yep. than New Yorkers. Yep. And certainly, you know, um, you know, Southern Living magazines like that, they really have had have long been straddling this line between, you know, they want to cover the the new trendy stuff, the restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And certainly I've been writing about barbecue restaurants mm-hmm. for them. But at the same time, a lot of people pick up uh, Southern Living because they just want to you know, have recipes, recipes for cookies and for you know, homemaking ideas because these are people who just live in the suburbs, live in the Midwest, or live in the you know, it's Southern Living. So obviously more in the South, though they do have readership all over. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are just you know, people who are it's, it, more interested in a, in a very general lifestyle kind of magazine than they are the, whatever the, the cutting edge trends are. So I don't know if that means that's going to, necessarily change food and wine's direction significantly. but Right, and I, I don't want to contribute to any, you know, stereotypes of the South, like, no. well, now that they're in Birmingham, we're going to have a lot of recipes for biscuits. Like, I don't think that's going to be the no. case at all. Obviously, Birmingham is a, you know, a, a sophisticated city. It's it's not like they're coming to the backwoods. No. <laughs> but again, if that would save money, I'm for that, too. <laughs> it would be interesting to, like, just put them in the middle of, like, I, was a, saying, I used to cover off. Gordo, Alabama. Why don't they go to yeah. Gordo? Real <laughs> I think real estate's cheap in Birmingham. Yeah. Try, try, try uh, Gordo. Roundo, or, South Carolina. Roundo, um, or Dothan, Alabama, <laughs> which is, uh, there is a lot of nothing around in Dothan. I've driven right. around it a bunch because, again, a lot of family down in that area. Right. Then, you do, they should have done, like, the, the the Amazon thing. Say, like, who wants us? Yeah, that's you know, right. And then, and then, like, you basically then you, you, you have all your journalists captive because there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> you got to stay in your building. <laughs> exactly. and, and that would definitely probably be a bubble, though. You wouldn't get out too much. Uh, down there, so maybe I think Birmingham is a good a good balance because it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a good sized city. It's a nice city. There's lots of interesting things going on there. But yeah, it is also in the south. It's in it's not very far from the countryside. Um, so it'll be an interesting blend. We'll see. We'll keep an eye on uh, food and wine. See if uh, you start getting banjos and, and grits and, and biscuits on the cover. But somehow I sort of doubt it. it. It is interesting how this seems to kind of fit into this broader narrative of of. Um, 
whether or not media is too centralized. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think I think when this happened, I, I uh, launched off on Twitter about it. Um, it. You know, this whole debate, I, I think it's been like going on for a while, but I, I know definitely like since the election, um, I think it it has gotten a lot more attention. Like, is there is there just too much media attention focused in D.C. and New York? Right. And and it, it is interesting because like it does seem like okay well if you're trying to be a national publication I, why does it really matter where your headquarters well, is you know because you're trying to cover the whole nation right. so you kind of need to be everywhere yeah. right exactly that is the interesting thing and and there's no when we live in the digital age right you're you're on Twitter about this and so the, the conversations are on Twitter so the bubble is often not necessarily just because we're the same people in the same city going to the same cocktail bars for you know our martinis at the end of the journalist day where we're all on twitter it's all it, i think that creates a part of it but there still is a strong geographical element to it as well i guess because even though you everyone communicates on social media now you still get together and you still pe- see people and, and you go to parties and you go to events and right. so yeah there maybe yeah that, i mean like that, a, that geography a, still matters like a, like a great example is uh the, like the weather channel is yep. broad they broadcast entirely out of atlanta mm-hmm. You'd never know. It doesn't right. matter. Yeah. I, I mean, it, except for sometimes the anchors complain about traffic. That's the only <laughs> time you'd ever know that they're in Atlanta. And it's, it's certainly a lot cheaper to broadcast out of Atlanta than to have a, a studio in New York. And, you know, like, what, what are you really accomplishing with, with your prime property in New York other than just the, the prestige of, of being located there? A lot of it there, is the pres- you know? prestige. Um, yeah, I've, I've done work with some broadcasters in New York who have their, uh, like NBC has their, you know, was it 30 Rock right there yeah. in the middle of, of very expensive. But guess what? They they built a big production facility out in Stanford, Connecticut, yeah. right? and it was a big deal for well, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I should say, as, as they, I say that, well, that, they, that matters. They've been moving out. And, I, was, I was thinking about meteorology. Yeah. That, yeah. It matters. Like, obviously, okay, yeah, your location could matter more for something like food. So that maybe it, is, it is not on, an imperfect analogy. but Right. And, and, and I think, too, I mean, there is – you also want – to be seen, and you're going yeah. to be seen more, right, in New York. And I think, because I'm thinking just for about us, our newsroom right now is in downtown Charleston. Yeah. I don't really want to move to Goose Creek, you know. Well, it's sure, really, yeah. I mean, and that's not just because I don't have a car, but, like, it's really, in this job, it's important to walk outside and see sources, right? Yeah. That's really important. So well, I and, think that And you can literally, happens. if you need to go try a restaurant, yeah. it's not a it's right here. our proposition. You just walk down the street and right. you can get to it. So I think I think that's important for us, but I think that happens probably on a national scale too. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the same idea. Well, yeah, I, I think it's important to be near where you're near what you're covering. Near what you're covering. Um, so like it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, if you're a political publication, of course you're going to be in D.C. Right. Um, same, same thing, like it, it is beneficial to us to be downtown, for us to be downtown because it's like geographically central, but also it puts us really close to Right, the courthouses are here. Yeah, yeah. center like centers of power and government and uh, of centers of culture. You know, so it, it's convenient. Um, but you know, like if you're the New York Times and or you're CNN, well, CNN's another great example because for a long time they were based out of Atlanta, Atlanta also. Yeah, yeah. and you, you didn't really like. Did that put them at a disadvantage versus? Fox? Well, <laughs> I mean, but they but they have a like they have a. Um, a bureau, bureau in New York. Well, you yeah. definitely need one because that's where, oh, yeah. that's where the politicians are. They're going to be in New York or right. D.C. And you want them to come in the studio and, and do live. I mean, but so but, I think that's the argument is that when it comes to food, New York is still the seat of power. And if you surrender that, you're saying we're not players in this but game. I, it's happening. You mentioned you know, the chefs are leaving. Yeah, the chef, you know, I think the, it's happening the, in food the, for the, sure. Now the media is starting to leave. And, and, and it sort of makes sense that you want people out there. I was going to ask, do you know Bill Addison of Eater? Do you know where he lives now? Because – 
a great question. He just sold his house. He doesn't live ah. anywhere. Okay. <laughs> well, he was in Atlanta, right? He was he in Atlanta. A, was it Atlanta Magazine he wrote for for mm-hmm. years and years and then became the sort of national critic for Eater. And mm-hmm. so now he, he lives in the airport, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so, and, lives wherever he wants And that's to. an interesting – Which is a great model. Yeah, and like, Eater was always founded in New York, was very New York, and then they sort of got stringers and all. But yeah. now they got a guy who just roams around the country around. And, and eats everywhere. Well, like a side – Part of this discussion that I've seen a lot of people talking about is um, that there's this weird um, hostility towards working remote in our industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, like a lot of people won't really desperately want that to change and, and think that's important. Uh, that That's probably the the best way to break the, the like stranglehold of, right. of like <laughs> what they, you know, like coastal elite, quote unquote, right. um, power, like centers of power is to let somebody live in Raleigh. And write for the New York Times, sure. which which is a thing, but mm-hmm. it's just it's kind of a rare thing. So, I, I would think that you, if you're running like a national news or a national food publication, you'd want as many really remote just, contributors. The, well, the, the big cliche of these you know, these New York based magazines is they'll send some guy to Charleston, or they'll send some guy to Asheville, or to and they'll do you know seventy two hours in Memphis and then go write about it. It ends up being this. So cliche, kind of just you can almost predict what the the articles I, will be, yeah, as opposed know, to somebody who lives there and knows it and gets references. I, I just had the and, opportunity to write about Charleston for Garden and Gun mm-hmm. magazine in a pretty lengthy way, and you know, and people seem to like it. And I I wasn't going to accept any compliments on that because I was like, if you spend five years with your subject <laughs> before you write about, it, come on, like you got to turn your pen back in if you can't manage that. Like, it, so that's the point. When you live somewhere, yeah. it just becomes so much simpler. Yeah, and you know. You know, you don't just go do – I, I do this traveling all over to, to, to eat different restaurants. you got to dig deep to try to really not just eat at the the same eight places that everyone has, has sure. shared about in a, a certain place. Like going to Nashville, you know, there's certain places you have to go. But there's also some, some you know, if you had a local giving you directions, you, right. you'd probably find some things or some treasures that you aren't going to see written about by someone who hasn't been in town for more than 48 hours. So, like, I guess that's one question then. So, obviously, in the production of a magazine or any publication, there there's like actually a lot of people involved in that in different steps. Like, like here in the in the newspaper, um, obviously, like we have a big staff of people that write the stories, but then there's all, a big staff of people that actually produce the paper, take the the words and put them on print or on the web. Um, so, when Food and Wine is moving to Birmingham. Does that mean that they're moving like the entire staff? Well, they said or... ed- editorial. I don't know what that I mean, advertising and marketing staying, but I'm not sure about the rest of the. It sounds like it's being worked out on a case by case basis. And I do think I, I don't. I, I do write for Southern Living and, and have written for some other timing magazines, but I don't. I've never really been inside really inside of them uh, very much. So I don't know how it all works. But I understand now they are starting to share across. The brands. It used to be very much mm-hmm. time was time and Southern Living was Southern Living and Fortune was Fortune. And, and yeah. they, but I think they're starting to share those resources. So those could potentially, I guess, you know, you could have people doing layout and stuff up in yeah. New York and somebody editing it down in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how that's. Well, that, I mean, that sounds like it makes sense because it seems like it's the production part of it that is like the least geographically important. Right. And the most expensive. Right. I mean, yeah. And then if and then, like I said, if if so, if you move your your editorial and your production staff and then you let your writers live pretty much wherever, that right. sounds like that might be like kind of the ideal way to. Agreed. But editorial is important. Um, I, I think well, it, it is. Editorial it is 
I think having people together. I mean, you're gonna, office, yeah, you're bringing a certain perspective. You're having meetings. To, yeah. You're pitching stories. You're building an identity for the brand. And, 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 exactly to yeah. have a presence in that city. Going back to yep. Garden and Gun, I mean, they're very much associated with Charleston, yeah. even though they're a southern and really national magazine. They are, but there's such a Charleston feel. But to they them. have a Charleston you know, feel, yeah. and so I do think even if we nationalize, you do still want to have that that branding aspect. Well, I think there is, you know, d- despite, and I've, I work all over the country mm-hmm. and. I do teleconferences, I do video conferences, but there's nothing like just getting face-to-face in the room and working with people. And, and I don't think – there's no technology invented yet that even super high-def video conferences with 14 cameras, it, it's just not the same. So I think there is that that being in a place matters. And, and uh, so I think being in Birmingham will definitely change food and wine. How, how it will remains, remains to be seen. That's all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the Southern Podcasting Studios at the very, Post and Courier southern. Building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the Southern J. Emery Parker. Our theme music is Y'all. by the Bluestone Ramblers. <laughs> He does not drink sweet tea at all. <laughs> and until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat. <laughs>